1: do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
2: If you're shopping while working, eating or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty and Expedia and even stack sales
1: Sponsored by Raytheon.
2: So much of the activity that we see from Russia in terms of interference in our country and in our politics is aimed at dividing us from each other. And so we actually think it's of strategic importance to respond in a bipartisan way.
0: I know there's a couple of bills that have been put on the table. Where do those stand?
1: There have been bills drafted that have bipartisan co-sponsors. But there is gridlock right now. Our broader political conversation about this issue is still stuck in that initial aspect of the conversation about whether there's a problem, which is incredibly frustrating given how much evidence is now out.
0: The Alliance for Securing Democracy is a bipartisan transatlantic initiative housed at the German Marshall Fund. It is working to expose and publicly document efforts by Russia and other authoritarian regimes to subvert democracy in the United States, in Europe, and globally. The alliance also develops comprehensive strategies to defer and defend against efforts by state actors to undermine democracy. The alliance is co-directed by Laura Rosenberger and Jamie Fly. I recently had an opportunity to sit down with Laura and Jamie to talk about ASG and the important work it is doing. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our sponsor. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morel. From end to end cybersecurity to high energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there, advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Laura, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. This is your second time on the show, and it is good to have you back.
2: Thanks, Michael, for having me back. Glad to be here.
0: Jamie, this is your first time on the show, and I hope it's not your last time. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I need to let our listeners know that I am not an unbiased interviewer in this episode of the podcast, as I am a member of your advisory board. So now that I have taken care of that journalistic ethic we can move on here let me start by asking you both to provide a brief description of your background because in the introduction i wasn't able to to speak about you two i was able to speak about asg right so maybe just a little bit on your background and laura why don't you go first
2: sure so um Laura Rosenberger. Um, so I direct the Alliance for Securing Democracy, along with, with Jamie, at the, at the German Marshall Fund. I've been doing that for about a year. The project, of course, is focused on how we counter foreign interference in, in democracies. But I came to that issue from a background in national security, a little over a decade in the executive branch, state departments primarily, and about two and a half years at the National Security Council I was a civil servant for the vast majority of that time, worked in both the Bush and Obama administrations. And I left government in mid-2015 to work on Hillary Clinton's campaign as her foreign policy advisor.
1: Okay. Jamie? So Laura and I often joke that we have parallel backgrounds, even though we only met 15 months ago. But I've been in national security in D.C. for about 15 years after grad school as well. I've worked at the Council on Foreign Relations and was in the Bush administration as a, a political appointee at the Defense Department and NSC. More recently, I've done think tank work, and then was Marco Rubio's foreign policy advisor, uh, hoping to work for someone who would run against Laura and Secretary Clinton in the general election. And I joined the German Marshall Fund at the same time Laura did, and I'm now co-director of the alliance.
0: So is this a bipartisan effort, nonpartisan effort? How do you guys think about that?
2: So we think about it as a bipartisan effort. Obviously, most of the work that we do is nonpartisan in the sense that it doesn't have a particular partisan orientation to the work. But Jamie and I, obviously, our backgrounds both is such that we have pretty clear partisan affiliations. Um, a number of folks on our advisory council also have clear partisan affiliations from both parties. We have others like yourself who were, you know, longtime just career officers in the national security apparatus in one place or another. But the reason I think in, that we have largely thought of this in the bipartisan sense, or I, you could even talk about it in like a transpartisan sense if you wanted to, is because we actually think so much of the activity that we see from Russia in terms of interference in our country um, and in our politics is aimed at dividing us from each other. And so we actually think it's of strategic importance to respond to the kind of attack that's being launched on our country in a bipartisan way or across party lines, however you want to think about that. Not to just say this isn't really a partisan issue, but to really kind of go that one step further and say we have got to come together across partisan lines to tackle this problem because responding in a divided way actually only helps those who are trying to attack us.
0: And why did you guys decide to take this on, right? I mean, a lot of things that you could be doing right now. Why this, Jamie?
1: So for me, it grew out of an interest, a longtime interest in U.S. policy towards Russia. I worked on nonproliferation and arms control. In the Bush administration at the NSC in 2008, I was working on missile defense, trying to finalize our cooperation with the Poles and Czechs was involved in some of the conversations with the Russians just as they invaded Georgia. And as I was asked to kind of help Steve Hadley and the team put together the handover memo to the Obama administration, I got access to all of the memcons and transcripts from the eight years of the Bush administration engaging Russia. And what struck me at the time, and I think others have written about this now, Peter Baker's book on, on the uh, Bush administration, I think touches a lot on this. It struck me that although President Bush certainly had the best intentions, was able to extract some areas of cooperation with Putin, at the end of the day, Putin had gotten the better of us over that eight years. And then on the outside, as I began to do some other work on Russian arms control, human rights, I saw the Obama administration go through the exact same experience and and its tenure uh, with Putin having gotten the better of us once again. And so that was troubling to me. And so when I met Laura and talked to her, about her experience during the Clinton campaign, some of the things that I saw living through the 2016 election, working for Senator Rubio, and then sitting in Congress getting briefed by the Obama administration, both during and then after, Uh, it really troubled me that it had gotten to the point where the Russians weren't just kind of winning geopolitical battles with us in Syria or Ukraine. They were now inserting themselves into our democracy. And my own party was absolutely, for the most part, in denial of that fact. And so it was a very compelling project to me that I wanted to be involved in. All right. It's a little bit personal
2: for yeah. you, right? Yeah, for me, it's personal. It's personal on a couple levels. Let me kind of take a couple steps back. I was, as, as you know, at the NSC when Russia was taking its steps to invade Crimea, um, you know, illegally claim annexation of Crimea and then um, launch an incursion into eastern Ukraine using a whole series of hybrid tactics. And I watched the Obama administration wrestle at that time with how to handle not just the military aspects of what was happening, but you know, we were watching some of these information operations, the cyber attacks, the you know, asymmetric tools that were being launched. The Russians
0: were very aggressive against the Ukrainians
2: very aggressive. And many of the tactics that we see now being used in the United States and elsewhere in Western Europe were road tested in Ukraine. I mean, they were really road tested first at home against the Russian people in many ways. Um, But Ukraine was really and remains sort of the testing ground for lots of this stuff. And frankly, you know, the Obama administration had a really hard time wrapping our hands around what was happening. I think there was uh, there were elements of intelligence challenges. You know, we had some issues where, you know, things that are are open source um, aren't necessarily the ones that rise to the top. But when you're talking about social media and information operations, a lot of that was really happening in the open. So we had some areas where we kind of weren't seeing the whole picture together. We weren't sort of integrating things in, in real time in the way I think we needed to be able to. And then these tools are challenging ones for the U.S. to launch a response against. And the policy options for us are limited. And so I experienced in that context the, the limitations that we faced in wrapping our hands around that set of tools. And then fast forward a couple years, you know, sitting on the Clinton campaign and realizing that these tools that many people thought were ones that Russia was only going to use on its periphery, watching these tools be, you know, used against us, essentially jumping across the Atlantic was a real a shock to the system. I realized that our country was was under attack. Did um, you
0: see it on a day-to-day basis in the campaign?
2: So we saw a lot of things. Um, obviously the most visible at during the campaign itself was the hacking activity and then the weaponization of the hacked material, the the leaks through proxies and carve outs and cutouts of that material. And so, you know, we knew that there was some very odd things happening there, um, some very deliberate things happening there that felt very much like a nation state attack. This wasn't espionage, right? This was was a deliberate Mm -hmm. effort. What we didn't really understand at the time and really fully see at the time was what we now know was the full scope of the social media-based information operations, right? We saw... Certain pieces of that, we saw weird, occasionally we'd see weird activity. We'd see some odd kind of disinformation floating around that seemed, you know, sometimes it'd be from straight up labeled Russian propaganda outlets like Sputnik and RT. Sometimes it had those hallmarks, but was embedded elsewhere. But we saw odd things happening, but couldn't put the full picture together, couldn't put our fingers on really what was happening at that point in in time.
0: So lots of questions about ASG. The first one is Russian interference in the 2016 election. Your level of certainty in that judgment. Do you guys have any doubts whatsoever, Jamie?
1: I I certainly personally do not have any doubts. And I think there's plenty of evidence now. Uh, Obviously, for a long time, we've known about the intelligence community assessment that was released even before the end of the Obama administration which has now been reaffirmed repeatedly by every one of President Trump's appointees to those various positions. Uh, And President Trump himself, I always tell my Republican friends, uh, if they're Trump supporters, President Trump has talked about this and admitted that both the Russians, even though he always adds the caveat that it could have also been others trying, uh, has said that this is something we need to be concerned about. The other thing that I think we've found very useful, and it's not the purpose of uh, what Special Counsel Mueller has been doing with his indictments, but the documents that have accompanied th- those indictments have been incredibly useful to outside researchers who are working on this problem because, at least in our case, with what we do with the alliance and our own open source analysis, it's validated a lot of the trends and things that we've seen. I think it's also helped some of the social media companies who have been struggling to deal with this problem on their platforms because the Mueller documents by declassifying information and naming accounts in some cases where individuals has allowed people on the outside to then draw other connections about what's going on. Uh, so I think there's plenty of information now in the public domain from the intelligence community, from Congress, as well as from uh, some of the uh, indictments that the, the Mueller team has now done.
0: One of, the, one of the ways I think about it is the public's understanding from its government of what happened here started with the intelligence community assessment and it seems to me anyway that that has been simply reinforced by what's come since you know particularly the special counsel's indictments right of the russians themselves right it, it shows that 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 assessment was was on the mark if not a little even you know more gloomy than it should have been right it, it it's uh, their bookends in a lot of ways
2: yeah i think um you know as jamie said there's so much very clear public documentation, and, and Michael, you certainly know, looking at even just the special counsel's indictments, the amount of work and effort, and frankly, the significance of having that much detail included in a public document. There were a lot of conversations that had to be had internally about sources and methods and how much to disclose and and how much to share and I think it's incredibly important that that degree and detail of information has been has been shared for a couple of reasons. One, I think the American people have a right to know. I think that exposure of these activities plays a really, really critical role in both inoculating against them, raising awareness and making people um, sort of, you know, better able to kind of defend against these sort of tactics. And it, And then there's an important, I think, deterrent role to that, too. I mean, these are Activities that kind of by definition operate either in the gray or in the black Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, right? And so the public exposure piece there is is really important. I would just add two other data points to what what Jamie and and you just mentioned. One is that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the bipartisan chair and vice chair, Senator Byrne, Senator Warner, also released their own report a few weeks ago from a bipartisan perspective affirming the findings of the intelligence community assessment. Right, right. Which I think was an important statement.
0: Right. By the way, this is an editorial comment. In this political environment, I think Chairman Burr and ranking uh, member um, Warner deserve the Medal of Freedom for, you know, being able to be bipartisan, nonpartisan in this environment.
2: They have been a real model, yeah. I think, yeah. and especially on this issue of the seriousness with which we need to approach understanding it and countering it and then of really doing it in, in total lockstep. The other thing I would just note is Rod Rosenstein announced when he was in Aspen a policy uh, approach the Department of Justice is going to be taking on these issues, that he rolled out a report that the attorney general had signed off on, on how they're going to counter malign influence. He outlined a typology of the kinds of activities that we see happening to interfere in our democracy by foreign powers, tracked very closely with exactly how we think of these issues And really talked about, again, the importance of government action to expose, deter, indict, um, and then working with private sector and and civil society to to counter these things.
0: The current director of national intelligence and the current director of the FBI say that the Russians to this day continue to interfere in our democracy. What exactly are they doing? What exactly do you guys see?
1: Well, this is what's concerning, very concerning to us, even though we've been doing this project now for a year. So much of the debate and conversation we're still having about this issue is focused on the 2016 context. And I think, unfortunately, to the broader public, which doesn't honestly have time, they shouldn't have to waste their time, valuable time on issues like this. I think many of them don't even understand that this is an ongoing problem, even though government officials have started to say that more and more. We've seen through our independent work ongoing manipulation efforts on social media. It may be slightly different in the sense that it's not tied necessarily to one particular candidate, but some of it's similar in terms of attacking individual political figures in the U.S. A lot of it's issue-based, which is, quite frankly, from my perspective, even more concerning because it's so insidious that I think many Americans can fall for this information and consume information from a foreign power be manipulated in ways they might not, never imagine. Can you give some
0: examples of what you're seeing?
1: This is pretty much what we've seen in terms of the social media monitoring we do on Twitter and accounts that we believe and the experts we work with believe are linked ultimately to the Russians. Almost every major hot-button political topic in the U.S., whether it's gun control, whether it's social issues, whether it's the take-a-knee controversy related to the NFL, especially, I'd say, if President Trump weighs in on one of these hot-button issues and then provokes a response on the left. It's seen, I think, by the Russians and potentially other foreign actors in the long run, which is the real danger, as something to be exploited and to fan the flames of division that already exist between Americans of different political views. And the other frightening thing is it's not like they're weighing in on one side necessarily. There is some of that on certain issues where it advances their goals. A lot of it is just amplifying the most vocal, heated rhetoric on both sides of the debate to make the debate angrier and to really just make it such that Americans can't cooperate and have civil discourse. And that's really undermining to the fundamental us. fabric, to fabric of our democracy.
0: Yeah. Um, and you guys see all of this on your Hamilton 68 dashboard, which I think is really cool. So where does the name come from and then what does the dashboard do, Laura?
2: So the name of the dashboard, Hamilton 68, actually comes from one of the Federalist papers, Federalist 68, authored by Alexander Hamilton, where he warned at our nation's founding of the dangers of foreign interference in our democratic processes. Now, at at that point in time, they were worried about the King of England, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and so... You know, things have changed a little bit in that period of time. But this concern about the fact that a foreign power interfering in the core institutions of our democracy and the threat that it would pose to them was something that was very much on the minds of the founders. And so we felt it was important to, you know, remind people um, really about why we believe this is such a threat. Um, and it, again, really, really dates back to the, to the founding and, and birth of our, our democracy. The dashboard itself monitors the activity of roughly 600 accounts on Twitter that are a sample of a network that has been linked with, uh, with the Russians. And what the dashboard does is basically show the various issues on which the this particular network is engaging. But I think, you know, more interestingly for us is actually understanding the narratives that they're trying to insert into the conversation. So you can go there and see hashtags and topics and things like that. But the most interesting piece of it is actually when you drill down into the stories and content that's being shared, because there you really get a sense of the narratives that they are trying to shape through the content that's being shared. Now, sometimes, as Jamie said, we see just amplification of real debates in in America um, and that, that Americans are having themselves, but will try to artificially amplify a particularly extreme or sometimes conspiratorial viewpoint within that debate in order to, again, kind of raise the temperature on it. But sometimes we see injection of a very particular pieces of content or, or narratives. And so that tends to happen more around events that are of geopolitical interest to Russia. So, for instance, um, one of the recent events that we've tracked quite a bit was around the poisoning of the former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in the U.K., and we saw within hours activity of this network pushing pieces of information meant to push a conspiracy theory about what may have happened or really anything. It's, it's not, you know, in that kind of instance about convincing people of a particular scenario. It's about just undermining the idea that truth is a knowable thing, mm-hmm. um, that there's any way to know who was responsible for this heinous poisoning. And so, you know, in those kinds of instances, that's where we really see particularly pointed pieces of information being injected from the outside to to shape the the narrative and conversation.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of Intelligence Matters. Do you hear that? That's an enemy drone being led out of U.S. airspace with a line of code. It's just one of the ways. Raytheon cyber experts are helping customers stay ahead of cyber threats. Every day, we pave the way to mission success, training warfighters to succeed in the cyber domain, modernizing platforms through software innovation, protecting every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. So you watch what the Russians do in other countries, in addition to the United States, particularly in Western Europe. But, Jamie, you also said that you're interested in what countries beyond Russia might be learning here. What are we seeing on that front?
1: So what our project uh, has been heavily focused on Russia, obviously, because we're still learning the lessons of 2016 and because it's still such a major threat and challenge. But we also are looking at the tools they're using across the spectrum. So a lot of what we've just been discussing is kind of in the disinformation space on social media uh, and influence operations. There are financial tools that they've used effectively in Europe in the past to reach out and curry favor with certain types of political parties and political organizations. We fear there's some of that going on here in the U.S. on both the left and the right. Kind of recent indication of this was revealed, I think, with the indictment by DOJ of a Russian national who was trying and had successfully, it seems, um, developed relationships with key Republicans, conservative activists. And I think there's there's probably other such efforts underway, both here and in Europe. And so we're going to be looking at those issues as well. Uh, There's traditional cyber threats, both to our elections infrastructure and then the sorts of attacks that we saw in the Clinton campaign and the release of information. The scary thing for me is where this toolkit that's now being used by an authoritarian regime like the Putin regime is going to go with other authoritarians. We know that other authoritarians like the Chinese already do some of this, certainly internally, and also in their immediate neighborhood in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. We've seen them use financial influence and attempts to buy access in Australia, New Zealand. And there's a lot of things and a lot of ways that they could take this toolkit and, quite frankly, do it much more effectively than the Russians in the long run and be even more damaging and impactful in American politics if they so decided. And so we think there are issues related to that that need to be examined much more closely. The other aspect of this though that really troubles me is it's not just the Chinese on the horizon. We're seeing some of these tactics being used by U.S. partners. If you look at the hacking and release of stolen sensitive emails, the people currently doing that In Washington, right now, on a daily basis, aided by the U.S. media, uh, there's a shadow war going on between the Emiratis and the Qataris. Mm. That's where this has played out, where both sides, we don't know the full details. There's been some reporting that private Russian cyber contractors may have been hired to do the actual stealing of information. Two allies
0: of the United States.
1: Yes. And that, to me, raises a question about whether we're losing control of the normative conversation here. If U.S. partners even Mm. feel that this is a tactic that they can do by hacking U.S. citizens, which is a crime, and then using the U.S. media. There was a New York Times, another New York Times article about this yesterday, using the hacked information very effectively to advance a particular agenda. And so we think there also needs to be a broader conversation, not just what we expect and raise with potential foes like China and Russia, but also what the standards are that we expect of countries that want to be partners of the U.S. and whether we're going to put up with them adopting similar influence tools without doing anything in response or at least having a dialogue with them this, about this.
0: Is, this is a great transition to the report that you guys put out several weeks ago where you laid out the problem how you saw it and most importantly a set of recommendations that you thought were important both to defend ourselves and to deter adversaries or even allies right from going down this road can you walk us through that report
2: Sure. So basically, as you noted, we kind of talk about the history of these issues. Um, we do a good bit of examination of how these tools have been used, not just in the U.S., but also in, in Europe, which, as we discussed earlier, has been sort of a testing ground for, for a lot of this and has experienced some of these operations more recently as well. And then we use that to kind of frame the conversation about what we should be doing about it. And, and a couple of sort of the top line points on that. First of all, We think this is a whole-of-society problem. It requires action by government, and by government I mean executive branch and congressional, federal, state, and local. It requires um, action by the private sector, in particular the tech sector, but it's not exclusively the tech sector. And it requires action by civil society because some of these problems need to be addressed by strengthening the fabric of our democratic institutions, things like media literacy and critical thinking. But also, as Jamie was noting, a lot of these tactics are exploiting pre-existing divisions as well as festering wounds of things like racism in our country, right? So we've got to really work across all those dimensions to be able to tackle this problem. When it comes to government, we think there's a series of things that need to be done. Some of them are structural to make sure that we don't miss parts of the threat as we have in the past, right? So things like having a senior level coordinator at the National Security Council able to work across all the different dimensions of the interagency on countering foreign interference, accompanied by an analytic integration center, something like a national hybrid threat center. If you think about an NCTC-like model as one way of thinking about this, just given that when it comes to different authorities related to different pieces of this challenge, as well as you know different streams of information at different places, we think those are important. But at the state level, you know states run uh, our federal elections, um, and so it's really important for um, states to have the support and the funding they need, but also to take the steps necessary to secure our election infrastructure against cyber attacks. And then there's places where Congress needs to take action to putting in place the you know closing off vulnerabilities, whether that's the ability to purchase political advertising online without any kind of disclosure and transparency requirements, which we know the Russians exploited in 2016, or you know closing off various elements of loopholes in our financial system, um, making sure that there's transparency around investments and real estate transactions, things like beneficial ownership, knowing who's behind various purchases. We think all of those are really, really important as well as, you know, as Jamie mentioned, this this normative piece.
0: These legislative issues, I know there's a couple of bills that have, been, that have been put on the table. Where do those stand? Are those moving forward or are they stuck?
1: So the frustrating thing for me as someone who just recently worked on the Hill, there are often issues where there clearly needs to be some sort of legislative engagement where there's just no bipartisan consensus and so nothing happens. We're not there on this issue. This issue, there is bipartisan consensus that this is a problem, that there are vulnerabilities, the ones that Laura outlined. This has come out in the various investigations, Sisi among others. And there have actually now been bills drafted that have bipartisan co sponsors. But there is gridlock right now. And the reason for that is not entirely clear because some of those bills have a growing number of co sponsors, which normally indicates that something could pass relatively easily. A lot of it, though, I fear is just the fact that our broader political conversation about this issue is still stuck in that initial aspect of the conversation about whether there's a problem, which is incredibly frustrating, given how much evidence that we've talked about earlier is now out uh, about what actually happened in 2016 and what is going on. And so there's really a lack, my sense is, of political will, especially In the republican party mainly i think because of the way that this has been framed by the president and there's worry i think even amongst responsible republicans who understand that something needs to be done that their voters don't believe something needs to be done or even that there is a problem and a lot of the president's defenders who have attempted to protect him during the Mueller investigation i think have done us a real disservice because they've lumped everything into their frustrations with the investigation and cast doubt in the minds of many conservative voters about whether the Russians interfered at all. And so we're still stuck in that educational effort, especially on the right. Now, on the left, I'll let Laura talk more about that. My one fear there is I think some Democrats have been tempted and some have actually acted on this to really use this issue as a political wedge. And to try to use it against Republicans and against the president. And that's also unhelpful. Uh, I don't think that's where all Democrats are. And there are a lot of responsible Democrats proposing very carefully crafted solutions that have bipartisan support. But there's a temptation still on both the right and the left to use this as a political issue, especially in the run up to the midterms. And as of right now, that's really preventing uh, progress in terms of addressing these vulnerabilities.
0: So, if our listeners would be interested in reading your report, where would they find it?
2: So, you can go to our website, www.securingdemocracy.org, and it should be right there. Uh, We've got a big banner flashing it across the front page. You can download the report. We've got a nice short executive summary if you want that version, or we've got the the full kit and caboodle. And we even have a a video up there from our from our event where we launched the report where we were where we were lucky enough to have one uh Michael morell joining us along with former Secretary of Homeland Security Mike Chertoff as well as Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's been a leader on these issues um in the in the Senate, so lots of good stuff to to peruse uh there
0: great, so you guys have been terrific with your time. I just want to ask you one more question and maybe to each of you, right. And I think at the end of the day, it might be the most important question. Um, And, Jamie, I think you started getting at it earlier. If we do not get this right, if we do not figure out how to defend ourselves and deter people from using these tools against us, what's the worst outcome? What what does the world look like if, if we don't get this right?
1: I think the, the, the worst outcome is a further fraying of our democracy, quite frankly, and uh, a result where Americans are dispirited and even more uh, disconnected from their government. There's already a lot of apathy, I think, in America, separate from foreign interference about their elected representatives, about government's ability to deliver for them, And it's being exploited now on a daily basis by a foreign power that has an agenda of weakening us and undermining our institutions. And if this continues, I think, and and some of these vulnerabilities are not closed, I think that could get worse and worse and, and spiral out of control. Ultimately, it's going to certainly weaken us on the world stage. If we're a country that's constantly arguing amongst ourselves, unable to rally behind international causes, which is Partly what I think Putin's really just trying to do is distract us. And where we go in the future with a potential challenge like China, I'm really worried about where the future technology goes in this space as Americans use social media even more and more, move away from traditional media more and more, which they're already doing. There are some very scary things about manipulation of information and ideas and ways that you could use artificial intelligence to directly target individual Americans just like social media companies already allow their advertisers to do and campaigns in the U.S. are already learning how to do, if that is something that a foreign power can do to Americans and combined with big data and knowledge about what Michael Morell reads and believes and thinks and buys, there's some very Big uh, Mm Brother-esque scary implications of that for American democracy. And so I think that's the eventual challenge if we don't get to the point where we can have a serious bipartisan national conversation about closing off uh, a lot of the, the vulnerabilities and loopholes that have allowed these authoritarians to attempt to influence us. Laura, what do you think?
2: I mean, I I concur largely with Jamie's um, dark picture that he just painted, so I would just add a couple of other pieces. One is, you know, I think that we are potentially, as these tools become more advanced and more accessible and people understand more and more how they can just manipulate the information space in one way or another. Yeah, we could potentially end up in a sort of wild, wild west of some of this activity, whether it's the hacking, whether it's the manipulation. Um, I think that there's a real imperative there to, um, to put in place both the technical means to curtail this kind of behavior. Um, on the social media company side, as well as, you know, the, the defensive and deterrent government activity that needs to happen, you know, particularly against nation states employing this. But I, similarly to Jamie, also just really worry that part of the perverseness of this activity is it has taken one of our greatest assets, our openness, our robust debate, our freedom of expression, Um, And sought to weaponize that against us, to take our democracy and, and turn it inside out, essentially. And we have got to prevent that from happening. I worry that there's a tipping point on this at some point where information manipulation and control combined with hacking, combined with corruption and kleptocracy, can really lead to a world where authoritarian powers have the upper hand. I don't think that is in any way inevitable I think there are a lot of things we can do to prevent that from happening. But I think that that really requires both dedicated efforts and, and real uh, urgency.
0: Thank you both for joining us. And um, even more importantly, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Michael. Thank Welcome. You. That was Laura Rosenberger and Jamie Fly of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.